listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, my beautiful and lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Nawaz Ahmed to talk about his new book, A Radiant Fugitives. They'll be in conversation with Natasha Dion, but before I introduce them, I just want to remind you that Skylight Books is now fully open, so come on by. Our hours are 10 to 10. And we're still ad- adhering to some of the CDC out, uh, CDC guidelines right now. So please look on our website for whatever rules or, you know, just whatever we're doing right now. So look there for it. Um, we're still available for online ordering at www.skylightbooks.com. So check that out and come on and pick up your books there as well. Nawaz Ahmed was born in Tamil Nadu, India. Before, before turning to writing, he was a computer scientist researching, researching search algorithms for Yahoo. He holds an MFA from University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and is the winner of several, several HOP awards. He's the recipient of residencies at McDowell, Yaro, Juresi, Deresi, and VCCA. He's also a Kundiman in Lambda Literary Fellow. He currently lives in Brooklyn. Natasha Dion is the recipient of a Penn Center USA Emerging Voices Fellowship and has been awarded fellowships and residencies at Yale, Breadloaf, Dickinson House in Belgium, and the Virginia Center for Creative Arts. Named one of 2013's most fascinating people by LA Weekly, she has an MFA from UC Riverside and is the creator of the popular LA-based reading series, Dirty Laundry Lit. Her stories and essays have appeared in The Rumpus, The Ratting Wong, Body, The Feminist Wire, and You, an anthology of second-person essays, among others. She has taught creative writing for Gettysburg College, Penn Center USA, and A26LA. A practicing lawyer, she currently teaches law at Trinity Law School. Hello to both of you. Oh my God, this, thank you so much. Did I, did I mess up any pronunciations? Cause that's, I want the listeners to know I tried so hard. I want to make sure. So please, please just cancel me if I did. Please just like, I'm done. I'm out of the cultural zeitgeist now if I did. Thank you so much, Lance. I want no Was go ahead. You talk. This is your hour. I cannot. No. <laughs> no th- thank you. Thank you, Lance, for this. Um, I'm no super, problem. super excited to be here. Um, no, it's a 10-year journey to this. More than 10, actually. An 11-year journey to this oh point. Um, and this... so I'm super thrilled. 
And um, it's an 11-year reunion of both of you too, right? This is, it's been, this is a big reunion episode for these two. Yes. I haven't seen Nawaz since Breadloaf, t- 2010. That was like oh the God. year that changed my life in writing. So it's <laughs> so great to see him. He looks exactly the same, by the way. You know, black, brown, we don't care. None of that. <laughs> exactly. Look, exactly. Let's just say the melanin is popping on this podcast right now. <laughs> Natasha, you look exactly the same. What has happened to me is I've had a lot of gray hair. My hair has turned like half gray. And you look exactly the same. Uh, oh, my God. No, it, it's, it was an amazing, thinking back about that, it's such a amazing time because i remember natasha we were waiters in the in that particular bread loaf um, retreat and natasha read at the waiters reading from her first novel she read i think the opening scene and i still remember it and a few years later it came out and now she has a second book and amazing amazing the finishing (laughs) is coming out also this year same press counterpoint press and um, I am so thrilled because I hadn't started my novel then I in fact went back from uh, bread loaf and started the novel that August Um, so the novel has it's taken me a little longer to get here, but. <laughs> Listen, it's about the journey. That's what it's about. The journey. That's right. And look at you both. Look at where you guys come from the last. That's growth. That is growth right there. I, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. A, Lance, when you were reading my bio, I haven't heard that bio. I'll be honest, because it was my first bio that you just read from like, oh from like that time. So hearing yeah. that, it was, it's exactly what Nawaz is saying. It's, it's you see the beginning of the journey mm-hmm. and then how far, how much has changed since then. And I read something that said, you know, do you remember the time where you wished for what you have right now? Mm-hmm. At least one of the things that you have right now, at one time you wish for it. And to be sitting here with Nawaz in, in the camaraderie that came out of Breadloaf as waiters, you know, working and writing. I think it's just a beautiful moment. So I'm just kind of resting in that right now. Like, wow. I'm like about to tear up for the two. This is beautiful. This is, this is, this is just, oh my God, the love in the space right now, the friendship, the, oh, this is just beautiful space. But before like, we just like continue just just because I could no I want to like gush over the two of you and all of this history that you two have and the journey you both been on um I want to let Nawaz read from this book first so we get to hear the wonderful book too and I know the listeners are like all leaned in now ready to go so Nawaz I'm gonna let you take it away with your reading okay um my novel is Radiant Fugitives And um, I'm going to read a little bit from the prelude, I think, because that would set up the novel. And um, to the only thing to note, I think, since it's the beginning of the book, um, is that the narrator is a baby. And that'll become clear enough as I continue to read. Um, So here we go. 
one. My life outside my mother's womb has just begun. But what a beginning. I'm bathed in a harsh light, buffeted by jarring noises from all directions, and besieged by cold hands and instruments that prod and squeeze. Doctors and nurses circle me. They apply suction to clear away my airways of fluid and pump air into me to trigger my breathing. But my lungs have so far refused to cooperate. Consider this. I've spent nine months cradled in my mother's body. During that time, I was mostly asleep, suspended in a warm amniotic sea, my head and body and limbs secure. I was soothed by the regularity of my mother's heartbeats. My world was small and safe and familiar, interrupted only occasionally by lights and sounds from the outside. And even those arrived muted by my mother's flesh and bone, the light tinted by her blood. I knew my mother's voice and little else. Yet, I'm now expected to welcome a world I know little about, wrenched from my mother's embrace. A mother who is already dead. Her heart no longer pumps what little blood remains in her body, lines played on the operating table. Beside her, a doctor is furiously trying to revive her, his hands massaging her heart via the six-inch incision in her abdomen through which I was lifted out just a minute ago. The doctor compresses her heart's chambers to coax them into action again, all the while issuing commands that others rush to carry out. They're working hard, these men and women, as if they believe and fear. They still hold my mother's life in their hands. As for my attendants, they're anxiously awaiting a sign from me, particularly a lusty cry that will indicate my lungs have inflated and that I've accepted my admittance into this world. Two, is this to be the extent of my experience of my mother? These few moments in the operating room when I still feel linked to her, the umbilical cord only just severed, the oxygen that flowed through her body still flowing through me? Taking a breath and crossing the threshold of this world will sever my remaining connection to her and consign her to the shadowy regions of my subconscious. I would like to think I have more choice. I could hold my breath and be granted a longer respite. A few moments more to grieve what I've lost, to appraise what I'm about to enter. For what world handicapped child at the same time it receives him? My mother's name is Seema, which means face, something of her I will never see, or frontier, something I must leave behind. How twisted it is to be able to properly mourn her, I must not cry, for with the very breath I take to cry, I will leave her behind. All that I will carry of her is what she has left imprinted deep within me, and the name she's given me, Ishrah, sunrise, radiance. I'm now going to skip a few sections that talk about how he's conceived. On the eve of the separation of Seema, his mother, and his father Bill, 
and move on to the end of the prelude. Five. Now, not quite nine months later, my mother lies lifeless in an emergency ward in San Francisco, while my father treads the marbled floors outside, a dark silhouette pacing the stark hall. Bill never expected to be here, having had little contact with Seema over the term of the pregnancy, and none yet with me. He can't help but wonder, did he in some way have a hand in delivering us to this fate by severing all relations with Seema on their divorce and signing away his parental rights to me? Six. Two other people in the hospital also claim kinship to me. My mother's mother, Nafisa, waits with Bill. She's pressed against a far wall, tiny in that cavernous room, subdued as a shadow in diffused light. Her thoughts are focused and obstinate, continuing a precise litany of hopes and dreams for Seema and me, as if to keep from considering any future that doesn't include us altogether. For how can she even bear to speculate that she who came to assist in a birth has instead precipitated death? Somewhere in the hospital, my mother's sister Tahara is searching for us. She doesn't yet know the extent of the crisis, but because she's a doctor herself, her mind is already mired in the looming possibilities. How is she to face Nafisa and Seema after the events of the day? And if something were to happen to Seema, how is she to keep her promise and assume responsibility for me, consumed by guilt and remorse at her part in the evening's tragedy? 7. Grandmother, did you know that the immature egg of me was present in Seema's developed ovaries when you were pregnant with her, by the time she had grown to the size of your palm? My future was being initiated within you, even as Seema's was beginning to unfold. And just as you could never have imagined then the shape of Seema's life would take, a shape that includes the two decades you barely got to see her, you can't begin to imagine now the shape being impressed on mine. Grandmother, do I have you to thank or blame for summoning your other daughter Tahara to meet us in San Francisco? For it seems now that it is Tahara who will hold and feed me, her lullabies that will rock my sleeping, her words that will guide my first steps. It is her I will come to call mother when I'm able to utter the word. I see her clearly, the substitute, running toward me through a maze of hospital corridors, her hijab fluttering, the jilbab dripping her up, her face flattened and blanched by unforgiving fluorescent light. I will stop there. Holy smokes, Noaz. Holy smokes, man. <laughs> I, you know, I read this, you know, before it came out. I was I was one of the fortunate early readers and I read that opening prelude and I had all these questions and I remember it, every word or every other sentence felt like subtle daggers. Like you're talking about, for instance, in the first piece, you know, the safety of the amniotic fluid floating there, but it's tinted by my mother's blood. 
you know, it's, it's moments like that. You're like, oh, how lovely. Oh, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, and then here comes dad who probably did he know the baby, his baby is asking, did you know that you were responsible for this woman's death just by the act of something as innocent or lovely as a sexual encounter with your wife would be the death of her. And just moments of just beauty throughout this, this is all poetry. The whole book is poetry. When you set out to write this book about love, about loss, did you have those things in mind? I definitely had the poetry in mind. Um, I remember, I think, in my very first year of my MFA, talking to a poet friend of mine, Samia Bashir, and she's a fabulous poet, and telling her, I wanted to write a novel like poetry. So I think I wanted to write, I've always, I think, wanted to write a poetic novel because I feel like poets approach novels in different ways. If you read, read a novel by a poet, they move their stories in ways that, as a fiction writer, I sometimes feel like, how did you do that? <laughs> they tend to go linearly. And poets tend to have this kind of associative way of telling a story. And um, that I felt very compelling. Um, and I did want that for my novel, to have that kind of feeling of uh, association where things can move from one to another. And I don't know if I managed to pull it off completely because I'm still a fiction writer and I still feel the plot. Like I you still... did it, friend. You did it, friend. Let me just interrupt you talking and talk over your, your, your vocals right now. You did that shit. You did it. <laughs> okay. That is so good to hear. Um, yeah, because um, my first love was poetry. When I started writing um, back at Cornell, when I came for my PhD in computer science, I started the first writing class I ever took was a poetry class. And I, I wanted to write poetry. And um, at some point, I don't know why, I turned to fiction. Maybe because I thought I can't be a poet. I'm not good enough to be a poet, so let me write fiction. <laughs> if, and I know you're a fiction writer and you write so beautifully. So I am not, I'm not trying to put us down as fiction writers. But I think poets do something else with language that is like amazing. They economy. They can say something that it takes us the whole novel to say and they can do it in one sentence. And I'm like, you know what? F you all. F you. <laughs> I agree. And they have so I much love fun, I feel, doing that. It's like, <laughs> you don't have to write 600 pages. Okay. And you can do what I do. Good job. Out like that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, wait. But let's let's like back it up a little bit because okay, you just said you just dropped this bomb. Yeah, after my PhD from Cornell. I mean, excuse me, like 
that wasn't even a humble brag. I can't even say it was like hum. It was just like it just was, right? <laughs> you get a PhD <laughs> in computer science from Cornell. How the heck did you find poetry? What drew you? The real question is, what drew me to computer science? Ah, a PhD at computer science at Cornell. That's the real question. Um, what drew me to PhD at computer science at Cornell was because I felt in India, where I had just done my undergraduate in computer science, um, I had felt that there was very little way of being who I wanted to be, which is this other person, this writer, this explorer, this even um, this gay man. So there were so many things that I felt I couldn't be in India at that time. And what drew me to a PhD was also a chance to get out because that's one of the ways you could get out of a country by going for a graduate study in somewhere else, somewhere that they would actually um, give you a visa and support you, which is essential. Otherwise, it's like impossible for someone from India to get to the US. At least it felt like that then. Um, so I did come ostensibly to do a PhD at computer science, but what I did at Cornell and why I chose Cornell was because they claimed at that time that you could do a minor in some other field you wanted. And I ended up doing a minor, I wish I could say poetry now, but I actually did one in modern dance, which is a different story. <laughs> <laughs> you um, just went all out, okay? You were just like, I'm doing dance, hip hop. Did you do? <laughs> no, it was very modern, very. Uh, it was uh, Cunningham style of dance, which is very. I tell you, I've never danced before, and I'd never and had it in poetry before, but I'd never danced before, so. I'm going to age myself, but I can see you like doing a little bit of pop locking, a little crunking. I can see you doing this. <laughs> no. <laughs> forget modern dance, forget poetry. I'm living my best life. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh. Yes, so that's how I came to poetry. I took class, one class in poetry. I did many more in dance, but I thought poetry I could do by myself. I don't know why I thought that hubris I think but the dance required much more training and and there was somebody willing to let me do a minor in dance so that's what I did oh right on right on I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of change directions just a little bit because there's so many questions I have but I want to make sure some some of the big themes in the book we get to talk about because you you kind of signaled it already you said when you were in India you didn't feel like you could be who you were Yes. Um, when you were a gay man, you were attracted to the arts, um, and and I'm 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 not gonna assume. So I'm gonna ask you: What do you have a religious affiliation, or had you had a religious affiliation in India? I know that what the characters are. So. I do. I mean, I was brought up in a Muslim family. Yep. Um, I have a complicated relationship with that religion. Um, so. That was the other thing that I had to explore is how do I do I see myself as gay and Muslim or what is my relationship? And um, that was one the other things I wanted to explore 
country, um, which seems like many gay people seem to have to leave where they where they grew up in order to be able to do that exploration. I hope it's changing, but that seems to be the way it was. Yeah, it maybe even is. I love that you have that. So I'm gonna. So that just sort of brings me to the next question that I have. So love and sexuality, as well as faith and religion, are big themes in Radiant Fugitives, and it, it comes out so beautiful. Um, yet sexuality and religion are are areas in the faith communities that we tend to shy away from. And there's also, you know, it's also dangerous. What made you want to make, well, I'm, I'm not gonna give away any spoilers. I think you could probably read it on the cover. So we know that Seema is lesbian. So you write a woman character who is lesbian and who has been exiled from her Muslim family. What made you wanna explore faith, religion, love and sexuality in such big ways? I think I was definitely looking for ways to explore my um, sexuality and my and my relationship with my faith, um, and it wasn't an easy decision to write about it. I think all the stories that writing around that time they skirted the issue. They never were like um, they didn't put the two together. The novel was the first time when I thought I could do that. The, what happened was I had a novella that I was thinking about working on, which had come to me out of the blue. I woke up one morning with the opening line, which is there in this book, not in the beginning, but it's there in the book, and a scene of two sisters sipping tea and there's some tension between them one of them is pregnant the other is religious and there's a dying mother in the background that is what i thought would be a novella something small and it would be safe but it had nothing to do with my sexuality and then when i was thinking of developing it as a novel i felt i could not commit to it unless there was a queer element to the book. I felt I had to deal with it. I couldn't shy away from it. I had been out for around 10 years by that time. And uh, there was so much happening in the country also around the time that felt like these issues were uh, threatening to so many. And while I felt scared, I felt like I had to deal with it, that I could not hide it away um so so i decided i think when i started the novel or started thinking of the novella as a novel that one of the characters could be lesbian and that would give me the element that i wanted so that i could see myself in the book and not feel like it was these other characters who who i still feel very, very familiar about because they feel like family to me, but I did not have that connection directly to myself. Yeah. Let me know if this is too, is, is too personal, but 
and, j- and I'll just ask a different question and we can get it cut out or whatever our buddy Lance is going to do. So <laughs> um, did it feel safer for you to write a woman, um, a gay woman? So Seema is lesbian. Was it safer to, for you to write her than say a gay man who was Muslim at that time? It did. I'm I have to admit that it did. I felt like there was some plausible deniability that I could say that this is fiction. It didn't have to do with me. Um, so that was one way of feeling safer. And um, the other way was um, I don't think I was ready then to talk about myself or about my own sexuality. It seemed easier to talk about someone else's. Um, I don't know if, yeah, it would have been a different book with a gay man in it. But I still felt it was, as I said, the opening line and the scene that I'd woken up with felt so real to me that it felt like it wasn't an omen, like this is something you should be doing, that this story had to be written. And so I was trying to see how could I commit to the story and still make it about what I wanted to talk about as well. Yeah, well, congratulations again. I mean, I saw it, I felt it. I was that baby in the womb. I was like, okay, everything's cool. It was so, you know, it was so real. It was almost like a memory. When writers write really well, it's like they imprint a memory in your in your mind as if it really happened to you. And I felt that. I felt like it was an imprinted memory. Um, and thank you for you know what you said about you know why we write. And I think it's there was a writer I recently heard, or a poet. Of course, it's a poet who said this, <laughs> who said, you know, I write to hide secrets. I can write, you know, I can hide my secrets in my pages. And I think, right? And I think of that as a fiction writer, you can write about whatever, you know, in a way that's still the truth. And that's what I think you really pulled off. So even though it's a, a woman, even, you know, even with, as she experiences her life, her queerness with her, with her husband, her soon to be ex-husband, um, I think you really pulled it off brilliantly and truthfully. So thank you for that. (laughs) Make it even complicated because I appreciate also the intersectionality of your book. So it's faith, it's um, faith and religion. It's, uh, It's sexuality. It's also about love and motherhood. But then there's the dad, the father of the baby is a black man. What brought you to choosing a black male as a character? Um, In my conception of Bill, he was, I saw him as black. Um, I cannot go back to the reasons now because it did not occur to me that I want to write about a white man. 
I did not see Seema with a white man. Um, I saw her with a black man, and uh, she was, you know, with a at least in the book, she is with a white woman, and at some point, but I think she's coming out of the relationship, and in thinking about the kind of man she might end up with, it it wouldn't have been an Indian man. It didn't feel like it would have been a um, white man. And I think Seema would have chosen someone she can relate to in a particular way in of how she feels oppressed. And I think she chooses, if Bill had been white, I don't think she would have married him. It's Bill's blackness that allows her to um, marry him because I think she's searching in her own complicated way, searching for a cause as well. And seeing Bill's outsideness in America, something that she relates to and sees that. Um, so yeah, it never felt right that she would marry anyone else if that comes across in the book. Yeah, no, it it made sense. It felt seamless. It felt as a black woman myself, but I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm ma I married a white man, and often on like when I'm doing when I'm being interviewed you know, especially in my own spaces, my own spaces being black spaces where I most identify black community. Um, sometimes people will ask that. And it's like, how do you, especially, you know, in the volatile situation of the world, you know, how is it that you can even talk to this white man about that? Who's, in, who's foreign, you know, he's an immigrant, you know, all that stuff. And it's like in our own spaces, all those isms are dismantled. Racism is dismantled. Genderism is dismantled. So it's it is hard to explain to other people, but I felt that in the book as somebody who's in a biracial, if if race exists, um, relationship. So I thought you did that. You did an excellent job of that. Which brings me to my next question, because the book is set in Obama era San Francisco. Kamala Harris is the Attorney General, which I remember before she was Vice President. You know, like, and I remember that time, and. And I've lived in San Francisco. I was a lawyer in San Francisco, living in the financial district, doing this whole very strict life. This wow. Gavin Newsom was just about to be mayor of San Francisco before, you know, all this. And you just captured it so splendidly. Why San Francisco and why Obama era San Francisco? I mean, I lived in San Francisco. Uh, that's where I lived while I was working in the Silicon Valley at Yahoo. Um, so nine years after I left Cornell, I was in San Francisco. And um, it was the longest I'd actually been in any city at that point, because my childhood, I kept moving between many places um, because of the way education is set up in India. There were no good schools where where my parents lived, so I kept I kept moving along to various other cities for my education, and so San Francisco was the longest I've ever been, and in a way it felt like home, at least while I lived there. Um, 
and why Obama era San Francisco? I started the novel in 2010, which is after the bread loaf thing. And, uh, and I decided at that time, I think, that I needed to make the time period of the novel very, very clear to myself so that I could actually write the book. One of the things I really wanted to do was to see how does what's happening in the country and in the political space, how does it impact our lives? And for that, I needed to choose a very specific time. It, I couldn't, I didn't want to really make up the entire political history. I wanted like, it's already there. Why not just use it? And so I said it, I decided that I was going to set it at 2010. And um, it also seemed that the time was definitely an inflection point. We had just come out in 2008 with this election that seemed to promise so much. And um, within two years, it seemed like some of that promise was crumbling. Like, and I think I was afraid. Like, I wasn't sure where the country was heading, and I'm still not sure where the country's heading, but definitely in 2010, I remember feeling frightened, especially there was um, a lot of uh, anti-Muslim uh, sentiment rising up again. Um, there was this whole ground zero mosque controversy that was being whipped up um, at that time. There was also the... Um, marriage equality fights that had started and lots of states were gearing towards trying to ban, add bans to their constitutions. And in the background was Obama promising change and hope. And it was like, how are these things going to work together? And is change and hope possible or not? And so I think when I began the novel, I was like, let me put, put it here, like putting a pin here and seeing what is this hope and change and how is it going to interact with these characters' lives? And I wanted the pressure of what was happening in America at that point to fall on these people. It's like, do they manage to stand up to it? Do they crumble under it? What happens to these people when there's so much in the outside world that impacts them? And that was one of the things that I was also thinking a lot about. Just because it was affecting me, I was like both Muslim and gay and and also a person of color and so proud of having Obama in the uh, in the White House and and then and wondering what is the future going to be like. And yeah. And the book was still written when in twenty sixteen we had Trump come to the White House and it was like, this was what I was afraid of. And that mm -hmm. is where some of the fears in the book, I think, are there in the book. They were like this. They were still tentative, but they were there in 2010 when I said the book. So. I'm glad you know, since you talk about that too, the way, you know, through an era the Obama area, there's so much hope, but we also, it's like looking in your peripheral vision and you see the little monsters getting stronger and getting closer and closer, but you're like, nope, I'm going to stay focused straight ahead. And 
it felt, even though you know, you feel the weight of what's happening and you can see this shift. I remember being at a dinner and I remember for a long time, I was thinking, there's no way Trump can win. There's no way Trump can win until I was sitting at this table. And the people, not black, I was the only black person at the table, but the way they were talking about, oh yeah, well, he's not so bad. He's not, it was just the language. And I remember as it went around the table, I was thinking, am I the only sane person at this table? This was months before the election. And I thought, oh my God, this man is gonna win. And I ended up writing this um, essay called How to Brace for Impact because I was terrified for the world. Wow. It felt like when you're reading this novel, I'm gonna try not to cry right now and I'm not gonna give away spoilers, but when I read the ending of this book, I was like, damn, sorry. I said, damn, I didn't want that ending. And then you turned around so brilliantly and there was, there was hope in it still. There was still hope and you left us, the readers, seeing that hope in a different kind of way, like a transformed hope. Um, with, I'll just say there's angel-like qualities at the end. And it just transformed the hope. Did you, was that something that you intentionally, did you want to leave readers in a certain, with hope? Or did you say it's just, it is what it is? Well, thank you first for saying what you did say. I am um, immensely moved that the book moved you because I think I do cried while writing the ending. Um, yeah, and uh, it still makes me tear up when I read it. Um, so, uh, well, thank you. <laughs> I don't want to tear up too, but yeah. Um, I struggled with that ending. I know that there were times when I felt bleak and hopeless. And um, and the ending was gesturing to hope, as you put it, and yet I resisted it. I'd written it and, I, and it pointed to hope and I resisted it in so many of the drafts. I was like, it is what it is. It is bleak. Like, that's what I thought then. Um, but I think during the course, the 10 years that has taken me to write this book, I've come to believe in that kind of transformed hope, um, that there is a kind of a hope that we have to cling to because that is what will keep us going even if for no other reason and um, that's the journey of the book and the journey of me and and i hope the journey of america as well is that there is this 
something that we can move towards that is brighter and that I think is where the title Radiant Fugitives comes from is, is that we are all trying to move towards this light in some way and there is hope in that light and there is hope in that journey towards that light. And yes, that is the book I wrote and I myself hope to gain some strength from it. Thank you so much, Nawaz, and just thank you, Skylight, for bringing us together. I, I every, what a, every week I say this, and I want the listeners to know I mean this, every time I say this, every week, every time I do the podcast, run, do not walk, run to go grab this book, because from what I've heard today, from listening to you both talk about it, the emotion the mo- this emotional journey I went through I don't know about the re- the YouTube but I had was just like every second I was like oh my god this is I'm like tearing up right now this is so beautiful I know our listeners wherever you're listening from I know you're feeling that emotion too so run to go grab a copy of this book it is important it I mean it just uh what an important book thank you so much Lance, for writing this book and yeah i know me and natasha are just both both feel that right (laughs) we both feel that right now just wow thank you for writing this and thank you for i don't know for just putting this out there putting your soul out there in this way what uh what a beauty and i am so sad (laughs) i'm so sad to be the person who has to end this podcast because this episode has been so special but I have one last thing to ask the both of you um do you have anything you would like to say to the independent bookstore community as a whole and the skylight community I mean which wraps up this that community too it includes that but yeah do you have anything to say to them um first I would love Thank you, Skylight, for having me, Natasha, for this beautiful, beautiful conversation. And to, to talk and thank you, too, to the independent booksellers all over, because you were the ones who carried all the books I read. I mean, trying to find those books that you couldn't find in Barnes & Noble or any of the big things. I mean, we came here in San Francisco. You were our lifelines, independent bookstores. I remember going to things like City Light and and um, different different light. Why am I blanking on it? Anyway, Books Inc. And there were all these wonderful books that carried the books that I first spoke to me directly. Um, and I am incredibly thankful for that community for the kind of books that they carry and for their commitment to to bringing all these stories out. No, thank you for that. Thank you for that. And Natasha, you, I'm so sorry. To, I think I interrupted you for a second there. No, no, I'm over here crying. I'm not even PMSing, <laughs> I'm just crying. I don't know, it's just crying. I'm just emotional because 
I would have, I would want to say the same thing that I'd say to Nawaz with this book, because you had to carry this book for 10 years. And I just want to say mm -hmm. thank you for not quitting on her, on Radiant Fugitives, because there's so many times where we just want to quit. We're like, forget it. It's not going to move anybody. What am I even doing? And you finished that shit. And I thank you for it because it changed me and helped me to see another world. Like, when do I get to see inside an Indian Muslim family? Never. I, no matter who, who I know, but you get to know so intimately. And you didn't make any of the religious characters, which we, we didn't get to talk about it. But like Tahara, we didn't get to talk about how she was super devout, but she wasn't stereotypical. She wasn't, you know, you still understood her. And for the bookstores, oh my God, you guys are the flagships of hope. Talk about fostering hope. Every writer that I know is like looking to, what's Skylight doing? What's Book Soup doing? But for me, it was always Skylight. That was the first place I went. You know, when we could go, when you guys opened, I just mm -hmm. walked in there really fast. It was the quickest walkthrough, but I was like, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. Uh, and I filmed it and I posted it on Instagram. Yes. because you guys were the light carriers in this dark dark time and even writers who can't who are going through that that re-entry anxiety and they can't go out they're watching they're listening it's because you guys said yes and you guys said we'll stand here and we'll hold on this just grateful i'm grateful for you i'm grateful for writers i'm grateful bookstores and i'm especially grateful for skylight because it was the first bookstore i ever read in as a as a writer so thank you oh my god i oh i'm gonna start crying <laughs> it's gonna it's coming to me too oh my god well i i have no better ending than that i have no better way to end this than that so to all my listeners go out to buy Radiant Fugitives. It is on sale right now at Skylight. Um, it's It'll be right in the front of the store on our um, display, our podcast display. If you've come and you've seen it, so go grab a copy of it. And just like, fall in love with this book. It has the most beautiful cover, one of the most beautiful covers I've seen, so you won't miss it. Go grab yourself a copy of this book. And to my listeners, you know what I'm going to say, but you have a beautiful rest of your day. And come back next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.